the epistle of James, chapter 1, starting at verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptations, for when he has been approved, he will receive his crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning, and of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the understanding of this his most blessed word. Let's bow our heads and hearts for prayer. Father, we come before you once again, praising your name. We think, Father, of this, this season of the year when the world and its hustle and bustle around for the Christmas season. Perhaps has forgot the birth of Jesus, but does know about gift giving. And so we understand that this symbol of giving is still from Jesus Christ and God the Father who gave him that we might be blessed even at this season. So bless us, Father, and use us for your glory even in this season in which we are in. We praise you that we can come together in such a way and remember that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, came into this world for a purpose, and that purpose was to seek and to save each one who was lost. And having found us, has brought us to yourself in such a way that we can be known now as the children of God, just little children who have come before you, Lord, to understand that you are our Father and we are your sons and daughters through the precious blood of Jesus Christ that relates us to you in such a marvelous way. So bless us, Father, and use us for your glory in these coming days, especially in this season. And let us teach others that the reason for this season is Jesus Christ and him alone. So give us that kind of blessing in this time of the year that we might glorify you in a wonderful way. We pray for our families. We pray for each one. Pray for children. We pray for grandchildren. And we pray, Father, for parents. And we pray, Father, for families such as each one of us has, even praying for unsaved loved ones, that the glory of the Lord should not depart from them in any way, but that they too might hear the voice of the Lord and come and harden not their hearts, but be blessed in the great salvational faith we have in you. So bless us, Lord. Bless us this season. Use us into the new year in such a way that we might know what it is to walk in that blessed hope of the soon return of Jesus Christ and the rapture of the church, and so we would ever give you much praise. So we come before you as a church family, looking to you, Lord, to bless us in such a way that we know that we've been in your presence today and that you are the one who blesses us in a marvelous way. Bless our sick. Bless those who are away today. Bless those who are traveling. Bless those who are on holidays, Lord. And some cannot be here and some are here. We thank you for our visitors. We bless each one. We pray, Father, for your watch care 
over our leadership also in the board meetings. It's coming up shortly. We pray, Father, for the leadership of our church. We thank you, Father, that we can willingly submit to them in such a way that our church can come together and be known as those people who love one another because the Lord first loved us. So we pray, Father, for our leadership. We pray for the leadership of our country, whether it's municipal, federal, or provincial, that they might know what it is to have a heritage called Christianity. So bless us, Lord. Keep blessing us, Lord, through this season, and help each one of us as we are working together for your glory in this place. And thank you, Father, our work is not just local in scope, but through our missionaries are reaching to the uttermost parts of the earth, as you've called us to do. And so we pray, Father, for missions today, especially this time of the year when many are far from home. Bless our missionaries, comfort them, bless them, use them, and let them glorify you in the word of truth that goes out, that brings new life to human hearts who believe in you. So bless our missionaries. Bless each heart, even here, each home, that we might be a people who love you and follow you with all of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. We have the choir to come forward, please.
Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this moment in eternity. Lord, we thank you that we can gather together in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, in the name that is on so many lips in this Christmas season, but is so far from so many hearts. But Lord, we thank you that by your grace you have called us Lord, for your glory out of the depths of our sin and into a relationship with you. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us the most powerful, the most profound, the most eternal gift that any creature could ever receive. So, Lord, we pray this morning that as we meditate on these truths of Scripture, Lord, that we would rejoice in Christ our King that we would rejoice in our Lord and Savior, that we would rejoice in the free gift of salvation that comes from you, Lord God, the Father of lights with whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning. Lord, I pray that you would help us to submit our hearts, to submit our lives to what you would say to us through your word this morning in the power of your Holy Spirit. For we ask this in the most powerful and glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you remember from last week that I started by explaining that it was a faulty GPS that led Rita and Albert Kretchen to being lost in the wilderness. And I explained how Rita had miraculously survived for 49 days living on trail mix while her husband, who went out to seek help, has never been found and is, is presumed dead. And I explained that finding your way is a matter of life and death for us, just as it was for the Cretians. And something that that has maybe not been as widely publicized as it could have been or as it should have been was that it really wasn't the trail mix that sustained Rita Cretian. It was her Lord and her God. And that her survival was miraculous. And likewise, if you are sitting here as a new creature in Christ Jesus, your life is miraculous. Your new birth in Jesus Christ is miraculous. That God has taken you who were once a dead sinner in vile rebellion against a holy God has taken out from you a heart of stone and has given you a heart of flesh. That is the miracle that the birth of Christ reminds us of. So this week I'm going to be continuing my sermon from James 1, verses 12 to 18, the second half. And this is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of eternal life and death. And if you remember from last week, I explained that 
that verses 12 to 18 really are one thought. Verses 12 to, in verses 12 to 18, James is really looking at the same issue from four different angles. But because of the amount of information that's here, I decided to preach this as one sermon over two weeks. Because we need to see how all of this fits together, how this really is one thought that James is presenting for us. I don't want us to miss the big picture. I don't want us to miss the fact that James is showing us the character of true faith and its fruits, and that true faith and its fruits are a reflection of the character of God. Because true faith is grounded in the character of God. In writing of this passage, Simon Kistemaker points out that James is a pastor who fully understands the hearts of those who live scattered abroad from home and their former possessions. He knows that their lot is difficult and that they have begun to direct their complaints to God. He wants them to consider the person and the characteristics of God. Likewise, whatever situation that you are facing in this life, whether now or some trial that you're going to face in the future, you need to consider it in light of the person and the characteristics of God. Now, the four points that I divided this this message into, the first two we dealt with last week, also actually are all go by the initials of, of GPS, interestingly enough, but God promises salvation. God protects from sin. We looked at those last week, and then this week we're going to be talking about how God providentially supplies and how God predestines sinners. So first of all, God providentially supplies. Now, interestingly enough, we're we're thinking about this passage at the Christmas season, which many refer to as the season of giving, but I think and fear that for most it is more likely the season of getting, especially in homes where, where Santa Claus is the key and parents use Santa Claus as leverage or as extortion against their kids to try to control their behavior because of some omniscient figure who is either going to to bless them or not bless them based on their behavior. But thankfully, we serve a God who, although he is omniscient, does not bless us based on our behavior. He blesses us based on the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a righteous life and died the death that we deserve. But in this season of getting so often, because the focus is on the gift, people forget the giver. They forget the giver. We were talking yesterday, we had a, we had a, a quote-unquote sleepover. I don't know how much sleep actually happened here on Friday night, but there was people sleeping in the church, and then we had a brunch that the ladies kindly put on for us yesterday morning. And, and I did a short devotion from John chapter 6. And in that, I talked about how when Jesus performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000, so many wanted to try to force him to be king, not because they knew that he was the Messiah, because they wanted the free dinner. And so often that is the focus of us in our relationship with God. We want the gifts that God gives, but so often we don't want the God who gives them. 
And likewise, for, for, for children who receive gifts, or any of us who receive gifts at Christmas time, the focus really should point back to the fact that the gifts that we receive are tokens of love from those who have, have kindly been generous and given us a gift. And I told the story yesterday about how many of you know that, uh, that my, my girlfriend Jane was visiting here in the, in the fall, and, uh, and one of the things that, um, that she had never heard of or seen, Oral-B Ultrafloss. I don't know if, if anybody here um, flosses with Oral-B Ultrafloss, but if, if you don't, you should. It's really, I find the dental floss often breaks off in my teeth, but this stuff is woven, so it actually, it actually doesn't break in your teeth. It's, it's good stuff. Okay, I'm not getting any cuts from, from the company for that. But, but anyway, she tried to find it back home in California, and she couldn't find it there. So I, I sent her some dental floss in the mail. And thank you, yeah. <laughs> and the, the lady at the post office laughed, and she said, you're sending your girlfriend dental floss? And is this somebody that you want to keep as a girlfriend? But you see, for Jane, the special thing in that was not the fact that it was dental floss, it was the fact that it, it came to her from me because I care about her. And that's just a small example of the care that God pours out for us when he gives us his gifts. And sometimes we might think about the gifts that God gives us as, as something, maybe a gift we really don't want and we wish we could exchange but we need to focus on the fact that the things that God gives us come to us from his loving and sovereign and wise hand. That he gives us the gifts that he gives us because he loves us and he wants to transform us into the image of his son. So we need to think about the things that come to our lives as coming from above. Every gift is a good gift. And every perfect gift that we receive comes from our Father in heaven. But James is writing this here knowing that there's the possibility that Christians will be deceived by false theology, by a wrong understanding of who God is. So he's pointing to the, the amazing gifts that God gives, and he's also pointing backwards to the previous thought that he said that those people might say that God is somehow causing me to be tempted towards sin. But James is countering that. He's saying, don't be deceived by that thinking. Don't be deceived that the trials that in your life are, are a cause for temptation. Because when you're relying on God and when you realize that these things are coming from a God who loves you and has a plan in them to transform you, then they become an opportunity to rejoice and an opportunity to magnify God and an opportunity to give glory to God. So in other words, James is saying here that God can't be blamed for doing anything wrong because God only does what is good because God is good. So as we'll see, though, we need to be careful of our definition of good because sometimes what God calls good is not necessarily what we call good. We have to define goodness by what God calls goodness. We'll see how God's character is reflected in his dealings with his creatures. We can so easily fall into the trap of believing in a God that is not the God of the Bible. 
We can so easily fall into the trap of taking our cues from what the world tells us about God or what the flesh tells us about God, but our understanding of who God is and how he works must be based on his word and his word alone, not our subjective experience, not how we think things ought to be, but how God says things are. God is spirit, and we must worship him in spirit and in truth. So many people call themselves Christians, but when you present to them a fact about who God is and how he works based on his word, they say, my God would never do something like that. Now, in some cases, they're 100% right. Their God would never do that because their God is not the God of the Bible. But in other cases, you have to see that James is warning that even Christians can be deceived into false thinking about who God is. We're all prone to this, and we all need to guard strongly against it. James says here in verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We'll break this down into three parts. First of all, every good gift and every perfect gift is from God, and then he is the Father of lights, and then with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. So first part, every good and every perfect gift comes from God. That's why I called my first main point, God providentially supplies. Providence is not a word that is commonly used in our culture anymore. Perhaps it's because so many in our culture fail to recognize the truth of this verse, that every blessing that we receive comes to us from the hand of God. This is true whether we are Christians or whether we are not Christians. Because God makes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Matthew 5.45, it's his sun. It's his sun, and he can make it shine wherever he wants it to shine. But in his mercy, in his common grace, he causes it to shine around the whole world, even against those who are shaking their fists at him, even against those who are killing his servants. God makes his sun to shine on them too. But in his admonition against anxiety, Jesus said that, that God supplies for even the ravens. Even the ravens. And in, in Psalm 147.9, we see the same thing. He gives to the beasts their food, and to the young ravens that cry. God's providence supplies everything that we need. And if God in his perfect love and perfect sovereignty and perfect wisdom decrees that you need something, have no fear, you'll get it. You will get what you need. But sometimes... As I alluded to earlier, what we need is not necessarily what we want. Now, I know we'll be looking at, at James chapter 5, 11 in, in a few weeks, but I couldn't resist going there this morning. In, in, in Job 2, 9, well, first of all, let's, let's read James 5, 11.
Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The steadfastness of Job. Remember that in Job, in Job 2, Job lost everything. He lost his wealth. He lost his children. And if that wasn't bad enough, he was covered with loathsome sores from head to toe. And then, as if that wasn't bad enough, his wife told him to curse God and die. And her, his reply to her was, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Job was vindicated in his response in verse 10. He says that the writer says, In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. So James uses Job as an example of steadfastness or perseverance through trials. And he also uses Job as an example of what God does in the midst of trials, of God's purpose and how God is actually compassionate and merciful, even when you might not think he's being compassionate and merciful because of the trial that you are currently facing. But that's precisely the point of James 1, 2-4, that we are to be joyful in the midst of trials because God is using them in our lives for our good and for his glory. But again, we probably have to redefine good here. Because, of course, God doesn't tempt anyone with evil. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil to blame for that. That was made clear in the previous verses. But we need to ask the question, do you see the trials in your life as something good? Or do they make you question the goodness of God? I'll ask that again. Do you see the trials in your life as something good? Or do they make you question the goodness of God? I talked about this before. You need to fast forward to the end of the story to see what God is doing. To see that ultimately, God is at work in his children through trials to transform them into the image of his son. And that you won't see the full weight of what, what, of what God was doing in your trials until eternity. When you stand before God at the end of your life, then you will see with perfect 2020 hindsight. But what do you think James means here when he, when he refuses the metaphor, second point, that God is the father of lights? So what does this mean for God to be the father of lights? Well, first of all, I want to focus in on, on what it means that God is our Father. I hope you've given a lot of thought to that. Of what it means to have the sovereign God of the universe as your Father. In Romans 8, verses 15 to 17, Paul said that we have been given the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, 
provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, I preached on this several months ago, probably about a year ago, and explained that this cry of Abba, Father, is not the gentle cooing of a baby. This is a cry of anguish. This is the cry of our Lord, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? But we're able to call out to him because Christ was forsaken in our place. That the wrath of God, the full wrath of God, was poured out on his son instead of us. So we can cry out, Abba, Father, because Jesus cried out, Abba, Father, and we have been adopted into his family. We have been given the spirit of adoption. So, fellow Christian, we share in Christ's inheritance. We share in Christ's inheritance. If you thought about that, Christ's inheritance is the universe, and that is ours in Him. And one day we will be with Christ for all of eternity. One day He will wipe every tear from our eyes. And one day we will know Christ just as we are known by Christ. Because ultimately, He is our inheritance. Christ Himself is our inheritance. So we can go boldly into the throne room of the Most High God because we go in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Shouldn't that give you boldness in prayer? Shouldn't that give you more incentive to pray, motivation to pray? when you understand what it cost for you to be able to pray. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in in Matthew 7, verses 7 to 11, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Our Father in heaven gives good things to those who ask. So fellow Christian, what do you need? What do you need? Ask him. Ask your heavenly Father. James refers specifically to God here as the Father of lights. Now, of course, God is referred to throughout the Scriptures as Father, but nowhere else is he referred to in this way specifically as Father of lights. In 1 John 1, 9, we read that, sorry, in John 1, 9, we read that Jesus is the true light, which gives light to everyone. And then 1 John 1, 5, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now this is presented in the context of the argument that those who are true followers of Christ will not walk in darkness. That those who are true followers of Christ will walk in obedience. That they will forsake rebellion against, against God and will 
strive to wholeheartedly and single-mindedly serve God with everything that's in them. But to refer to God as the Father of lights here calls to mind the image of heavenly bodies. Of heavenly bodies, particularly the sun. That's the S-U-N, the star at the center of our solar system. And his reference in the preceding uh, phrase, phrase about shifting shadows makes this clear. God is the creator of the heavenly bodies, even our own sun. But unlike the sun, the tracks across the sky throughout the day that causes shadows to shorten and then to lengthen again. And unlike the sun that, that moves from the north to the south, depending on the season, with God, there is no shadow due to change. God is a fixed point in the universe. He doesn't move one iota to the right or to the left. Now, I've heard people say that while God in the Old Testament was jealous and vengeful, God in the New Testament is loving and forgiving. This is wrong on so many levels that it's hard to even know where to start. First of all, if God would ever have to change, that would mean that at some point he was less than perfect. It's as, not as though God somehow evolves to, to change with, with the changing times or to meet new challenges. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end, the one who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty, Revelation 1.8. Secondly, God is just as loving and forgiving in the Old Testament as he is jealous and vengeful in the New. God would have been quite justified to completely obliterate the children of Israel because of the rebellion against him in the wilderness, but again and again he forgave them because he had set his steadfast love on them and because he never changes. God is not fickle. God's attitude towards you doesn't change when you sin. Did you know that, Christian? You can do absolutely nothing, nothing to please God more than he is absolutely pleased with you at this very moment. Because Christ's righteousness, because every good deed that Christ did has been transferred to your account. So you can't make yourself any more lovely to God than you already are. Now, does that mean that we can go and then sin willfully because we have righteousness that comes from Christ? Paul says, God forbid. May that never be. Because if you really do love God, that will not be the attitude of your heart. You will never use God's grace as an excuse for sin. But you can't do anything more to please God than he is already pleased with you now, if you were in Christ. But you please him, you desire to please him because you love him. Now, people who talk about God as being more loving and forgiving in the New Testament really don't know the words of Jesus because Jesus spoke far more in the New Testament about hell than he did about heaven. And I saw something uh, in my devotions last week that I hadn't seen before. In, in Jude chapter 1, verse 5, 
Jude says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Have you seen that before? That Jesus, Jesus delivered the people out of Egypt, and Jesus destroyed those who didn't believe. This is Jesus saving and destroying in the Old Testament. But because we know that God is perfect and because God never changes, we can trust him. Don't let people tell you that Allah, the God of the Muslims, is the same as our God. Allah is capricious, and Muslims try to placate them by practicing the five pillars of Islam. They, they try to, to, to placate their, their God by reciting the creed, by daily prayers, by fasting during Ramadan, by almsgiving, and by making a pilgrimage to Mecca at one point in their lives. They believe that, that if they practice these things devoutly, they hope, they hope, that even if they do thing, these things perfectly, they hope somehow that Allah will have mercy on them. But this is the same for the Roman Catholic and for those that are adherents to the Watchtower cult. They know nothing of the God of grace. Now, I'm not saying that, that there are no Roman Catholics who are saved. I'm saying that Roman Catholic dogma, Roman Catholic teaching cannot save you. There are, I hope, Many who are in the Roman Catholic Church who are saved in spite of the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. But if you don't understand salvation by faith alone, if you don't know salvation by faith alone, you simply don't know God. Likewise, this is true for those who say they, they, they know God, but they don't trust him in the midst of their trials. And when you see somebody facing a trial and completely turning their back on God and completely running in the other direction and, and diving headlong into sin, if they go there and they stay there, they simply are not saved. They never were saved. But look at anybody's life for a moment in time and you might see that. You might see a period where in the shock of grief or pain, they may grumble against God. But for true Christians, that will never be the trajectory of their life. They will always be moving towards God, sometimes two steps forward, or sorry, three steps forward and two steps back. But the gradual, the gradual trajectory of their, of their life is more and more towards God and more and more like the image of of Christ. But we who know Christ know God's unchanging faithfulness. Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. It was the hope of the children of Israel under the old covenant, and it is our hope today in the new covenant that God does not change. Now, we celebrate this truth with the words of the excellent hymn, Great is thy faithfulness. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. God's faithfulness 
always has been great, and God's faithfulness always will be great. Now this brings me to my second main point. The greatest gift that the Lord gives us is our spiritual birth. The greatest gift that God gives us is our spiritual birth because God predestines sinners. God predestines sinners. Look at verse 18 of James 1. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Again, now these will, the first one will be a little bit longer and the second two shorter. But I have three subpoints. Of his own will, he brought us forth. Second point, by the word of truth. And third, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, especially this first one, um, it, it will very possibly challenge your preconceptions. So I pray that, that you will see what God's word says here. You'll see what God says about himself in his word. And you will submit yourself to what God says about how he works here in James 1.18. So first point, of his own will he brought us forth. First of all, we need to ask, what does it mean he brought us forth? Well, let's look at the second part first. It literally means gave birth to. And James is here talking about a spiritual birth, what we refer to as being born again. Okay, it's very clear in the context here. He's talking about the, the, that God gave us birth, that God caused us to be born again. Peter says essentially the same thing in 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Paul also said it in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Jesus also said it in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So every major voice in the New Testament, declares this. And every member of the Trinity is actively involved in this. Turn with me in your Bible, please, to John chapter 3. Here Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus, Nicodemus, who's one of the leaders of the Pharisees. And he says there in verse 3 of chapter 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I've, I've told you before that, that, that God actually used this verse as a part of my salvation when I was watching wrestling and somebody held up a sign at a wrestling match that said John 3.3. 3. And I didn't know what it meant to be born again, but I knew that I wasn't. And then six months later, through the, the providence of the Lord, I was brought in contact with the gospel, and I was saved. But no one can see the kingdom unless he is born again. So we need to ask the question here, where does this come from? How does this process come about? John, Jesus goes on to say here in John 3 that unless one is born of the Spirit, he cannot 
enter the kingdom of God. So again, to give birth in this sense is to cause to be born again. And it's the Holy Spirit that does it. It's God who determines those who will be born again. Earlier, I referred to John 1.9 about Jesus as the light that came into the world. So please turn with me there to John 1, verse 9. I'll read this again. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Now, it says here that he gave light to everyone. Does this mean that Jesus gave light to every single person on the face of the earth? Obviously not, because if, if that was the case, then Jesus would be, well, well, John would be contradicting himself in the very next verse, because he says that the world did not know him, and then in verse 11, he says his own did not know him. So we need to ask the question here, what does this mean enlightens everyone? There's a time when the word, when words like all and everyone refer to a situation that is without distinction, not without exception. Let's say that again. This is talking here about everyone without distinction. He's talking about the light that came to Jews and Gentiles. This is actually a quote from Isaiah, I believe it's, uh, I believe it's 47, early in chapter 47 of Isaiah, where, where Jesus and the Messiah is prophesied as being a light to the nations a light to the nations, without exception to all of the nations, not just for Israel. But the world didn't know him, and his own didn't know him. But to those who received him, who believed on his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God, who were born, now hear this, born not of, the blood, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Your spiritual birth did not originate with you any more than your natural birth originated with you. It originates with God. It is not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. Likewise, in Romans 9, where, where Paul uses the example of Jacob and Esau. Jacob was elect and Esau wasn't. And Paul assumes that people are going to be offended by this. So he says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that the per God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It's God's purpose of election. So Paul says then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So do you see that? It doesn't depend on our will, but on God's will. Now, please don't misunderstand me here. I am not saying that we are puppets and cannot respond to God. What I'm saying is actually far worse about us. I'm saying that apart from God's sovereign work in our hearts, according to his perfect will, we are vile sinners and we cannot respond to God because our hearts are bent on evil. Jeremiah says in 1323, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Now, maybe that's not very politically correct. 
but this part tires us all with the same brush, then also you who do good, so, so then also can you do good who are accustomed to do evil? Apart from God's work in our hearts, we are wicked. We were born that way. We were in bondage to sin. And the only way that we can respond to God is when he tills the soil of our hearts by his Holy Spirit. So elect brothers and sisters, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 And those whose hearts have been changed by the Holy, Holy Spirit's power will respond freely. They will re respond joyfully. We choose God because he first chose us. We choose God, but it is grounded in his sovereign will. It is grounded in his gracious and glorious election. Not because of any good he saw in us, not because of any good that he foresaw in us, but simply because of his mercy. Listen to our church's statement of faith that captures this quite well. We believe that election is the eternal act of God's sovereign grace by which he chooses, calls, justifies, and glorifies sinners, and that is effectuated by his Holy Spirit through God's word in drawing sinners to Christ so that their wills are freely brought into compliance with God's elective purpose. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. They're both true. They're both true. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 1. Here the Apostle Paul really expands on, on this truth quite profoundly. Now, a few weeks ago, in this, uh, I gave homework to those in the Wednesday night Bible study um, that, that they should study Ephesians 1, um, chapter 1 to 4, or, sorry, chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, and ask the following questions. Who, what, when, why, where, and how. So for the sake of time, I won't go into all the details of this, but, but I would encourage you in your own time to sit with this passage and ask these questions of the text. In verses 3 to 6, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. There it is again, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace by which he blessed us in the beloved. So God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing as he did what? As he chose us in him. As he chose us in him. Who did he choose? He chose us. He chose his elect children. When? Before the foundation of the world. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. So we need to realize that, that it's by God's grace and for his glory. 
Verses 7 and 8, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in wisdom, in all wisdom and insight. Again, the greatest gift, the greatest gift that God could ever give us is the redemption that can be found in Jesus Christ. It's the forgiveness that we need in order to have a relationship with him that begins now and will begin in all perfection throughout eternity. Verses 9 and 10, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. There it is again, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. So God's will is a mystery, but it's his will. Verses 11 and 12, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according again to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we might, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So again, we see that election is according to his will, and again, we see the why. It's to the praise of his glory. Now, we don't know why God set his love on the elect. If I was choosing people for salvation, I never would have chosen me. But God, in his mercy, for his glory, set his love on his elect to the praise of his glorious grace. This should humble us. This should bring us to our knees in, a, in worship of our sovereign God. But some people will then respond to this and say, well, that if God is really sovereign over salvation, why should we then preach the gospel? Why preach the gospel? Several reasons. Because God has commanded us to. First of all, in Mark 16, 15, Jesus said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So why preach the gospel? Because we love God and we can't help but preach the gospel. Why preach the gospel? Because we love sinners and we want them to turn from their sin and be saved. Why preach the gospel? Because God has ordained that salvation would come in the proclamation of his word of truth. You could say the same thing about prayer. God has ordained that he would respond to prayer, so we pray. But if you really think that salvation depends on the will of man, then there's really no point in praying. Instead of going on our knees to God, we should go to our knees on our knees to the person and say, please turn from your sin. But the same God that ordains the ends also ordains the means. So we go to God in humble obedience, praying that he would, that he would save a people for himself, praying that he would help us to be obedient, praying that he would help us to speak the word accurately and faithfully, praying that we would love people and love God more than ourselves and more than, than we fear their response to us or the rejection of us. Because God who ordains the ends also ordains the means. 
This brings me to my next point. Now, these last two will be much shorter. Keep your finger there in Ephesians 1 and turn back again, or sorry, turn forwards to James chapter 1. Again, it says that we are brought forth or we are given birth by the word of truth. By the word of truth. Okay, then back in Ephesians 1.13, in him also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed and promised, sorry, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So it says here, we were sealed. Now this refers to another aspect of our salvation when we heard the word of truth, which is here, the gospel. This is also proclaimed by Paul in Romans, Romans 10, 13 to 17, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him of whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing. There's no salvation apart from the proclamation of Jesus Christ, period. Spurgeon was asked about the issue of election. And he said that that he preached the gospel not knowing who was elect and who wasn't. He said if those who were elect had a yellow stripe down their back, he would not be a preacher of the gospel. He would be a shirt tail lifter. So we preach the gospel and God in his sovereign will will uh, will save those who have been elected for salvation. Now, there are some who promote a so-called social gospel, which really is no gospel at all. They hope that if they help others by doing such things as as serving in the community or, or giving to the needy, that people will get saved. But people don't get saved by anybody's niceness. They get saved through the proclamation of the word. They get saved by hearing the gospel and repenting of their sins through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And there's others who engage in so-called friendship evangelism. I've said this before, but for many, in many cases, this is more friendship than it is evangelism. And if you're not proclaiming the gospel to this person, then you really aren't their friend. People don't get saved through osmosis. They don't get saved by somehow that the gospel thoughts that are in your brain will somehow transfer over to their brain. That's not how it works. It is through the proclamation of the gospel. It is through the words of life. Now, don't assume in this culture that people have heard the gospel. I was 23 years old before I heard it for the first time. Likewise, don't assume that people who are in church every Sunday have heard the gospel because many churches are not proclaiming the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't assume that people have heard the true gospel even if they say that they are Christians. Don't assume. Don't assume. Because faith comes by hearing, by hearing the word. Now the concept of the word dominates the following section from verses 19 to 27. We need to remember that verse 22 is really the central verse 
of this epistle, of, of this epistle where James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And this, again, brings me to my last point. This is much shorter. The purpose here is that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The purpose of our new birth in Christ is to be first fruits for his glory. Now, the term first fruits is probably not familiar to many in this urban culture, but it would have been very familiar to Jews in the, the rural culture. The first fruits of the harvest were devoted to the Lord. The best of the new harvest was to be set apart as an offering to the Lord. Exodus 23:19 says, "The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God." So the first fruits are devoted to the Lord as a reminder that it is He who produced those fruits. He is the one who gave the harvest. So people give back the first of their harvest to give glory to Him. It's the same thing when we give our offerings to the Lord. We don't let the tax man take his cut and then pay our mortgage payment and then buy our groceries and then give God what's left over. We give God the first fruits of what we have received, the first fruits. But the metaphor here is very clear. It is God who is bringing a spiritual harvest. And he has set apart for himself that harvest for the glory of his name. And we who have been set apart for Christ, we who are his first fruits, ought to live lives that would bring him glory. We ought to bear fruit for his glory. But fellow Christian, you will bring fruit to his glory because of his spirit that is at work in you. Jesus said in Luke 6, 43-45, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a ramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of, the, of his heart, the mouth speaks. So what kind of fruit are you producing in your life? Just as in the parable of the sower, although there were four kinds of soil, there was only one kind of soil that produced good fruit. It was the soil that had been tilled by the Holy Spirit. And the heart in which the Holy Spirit has been, has been at work produced multifold, many-fold fruits for God's glory. So are you producing fruit for the glory of God? Then you can praise God that you are born again. But if not, if your life is characterized by sin and rebellion against God, then you are right to question whether you really are saved. Then you're right to question whether you have actually turned from your sin and are following after Jesus Christ. The gospel is this. That though we were dead in our sins, God sent his son, his only son, to live the righteous life of obedience that we could never live. 
And then he willingly, lovingly gave up his life on the cross for his people. And on that cross, he was punished for the sins of his people. Is that what you believe? That's the gospel. Have you turned from your sin? And are you following after Jesus Christ? Are you bearing fruit for his glory? So you can see here why verses 12 to 18 go together. It comes back again to the same point that we saw in verse 12 where we read about that God promised the crown of life. Brothers and sisters, that's what we are born again to receive. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we do thank you and praise you, Lord, for the miracle of new birth. Lord, I pray that if there are hearts here who have not yet been made right with you, if there are those who are trusting in their supposed righteousness, if there are those here who have not truly repented of their sins, we pray, Lord, that you would work in those hearts by your Holy Spirit, that you would cause them to be born again. And Lord, for those of us who are here who are truly born again, we pray that you would enlighten these truths to our hearts, that you will help us to rejoice in them, that you will help us to wonder at your sovereign grace that saved wretched sinners like us, and that we would live lives that are worthy of the gospel by your grace and for your glory. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.